The other blessing was my brother. Though three years my senior, he never seemed to be an elder brother. We were allies, not to say confederates, from the first. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 10, Soldier, Writer, Inkling. After Hours with Dr. Don W. King. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David, and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly and deliberately working our way through The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. Now, this month, we've been talking about storgi, affection, a love often found among family members, and it therefore seemed appropriate that we should dedicate an after-hours episode this month to Lewis's brother, Major Warren Lewis. And today, I'm speaking with an author of an upcoming book on Warney Lewis. His name is very familiar to those in the C.S. Lewis scholarship world, Dr. Don W. King. Dr. King received his PhD from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. He has taught at Montreat College for 47 years, teaching courses in British literature with a focus on Shakespeare, Chaucer, Milton, Romantic literature, Victorian literature, and 20th century British literature. He is the recipient of the Distinguished Professor of the Decade Award. Dr. King is an active researcher and writer, publishing numerous books and over 60 articles. A Lewis scholar, he has published five books, including C.S. Lewis, Poet, The Legacy of His Poetic Impulse, and several books about Joy Davidman. Out of My Bone, Her Letters, and a critical study of her work, Yet One More Spring. He's also led week-long summer seminars at Lewis's home in Oxford for the C.S. Lewis Foundation. And he's currently writing a book about Jack's brother, Soldier, Writer, Inkling, A Life of Warren Hamilton Lewis. Dr. King, this has been a long time coming, but we finally made it happen. Welcome to Pints with Jack. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. I've uh, admired your work over the years. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, today I am drinking Yorkshire Gold Tea, which I recently discovered is actually available for purchase here in Wisconsin, which makes me very happy. Uh, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking some uh, eight o'clock coffee. I think it might be their one of their flavored things, maybe a hazelnut, I guess. Excellent. Well, cheers. Cheers to you. So to kick things off, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, I was born near the coast of Virginia, actually in Norfolk, but then I spent most of my growing up years in Virginia Beach, so right on the east coast of Virginia. Um, I was a pretty typical boy, I suppose, of that genre or of that um, milieu in the 1950s. Thought I would grow up to be a professional baseball player or a professional basketball player or a professional football player, but I think I was too slow for football and I was too short for basketball and I was too bored for baseball. <laughs> so at some point along the way, and at the urging of my parents, I decided I'd better start thinking about some kind of some kind of future. Uh, I'd always liked math, so I took a lot of math as I was growing up, thought I would be an engineer. I went to Virginia Tech assuming I'd be an engineer, but after dropping physics three times and then realizing that I would never want to drive over a bridge that I designed, I decided it was time to pick a different major. So I'd always loved uh, literature. I remember in, in high school, slipping into the library one day and discovering Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and the Sherlock Holmes stories and 
about the same time the Edgar Allan Poe story. So I've been a secret reader all that time. So after my sophomore or after my freshman year at Virginia Tech, I, uh, and through a, another series of events, anyway, I ended up majoring in English and uh, just completely and totally loved it. So at what point did you encounter the works of C.S. Lewis? I don't think I had read Lewis before college. Um, and I think the way in which I was introduced to Lewis, I was working in one of the large dining halls at Virginia Tech. And at the end of my shift, somebody came up and gave me a copy of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Didn't know anything about it or Lewis or the Narnia series. But I read the book, fell in love with the Narnia stories, and over the next six days, read the next six books. It also happened to be during one of our exam weeks, but <laughs> I guess I did well enough to pass. So uh, that was that was my introduction to Lewis. And then I was amazed after I became an English major, I kept running into Lewis in um, a number of my upper level lit courses. When I took medieval literature, for instance, a required supplemental text was the allegory of love. When we did Paradise Lost, Lewis's preface to Paradise Lost was another required supplemental text. And I thought this was unusual because I was at a large state university. I knew Lewis was a Christian, and I just sort of assumed that Christians wouldn't get much of a much of a hearing at a, a large university. But of course, Lewis was a well-known and well-respected scholar. So kept running into Lewis in all these different situations. And what about his brother? When did you first encounter his writings? I don't think I read Warney until well into my reading of uh, C.S. Lewis. And I think it was probably, oh, maybe about 15 years ago, I was really beginning to publish some of my books on C.S. Lewis. But when you work on C.S. Lewis, of course, you begin to learn a lot about uh, his brother, Warren. So it was about that time I got interested in Warren, kept looking for more biographical information as a way of supplementing whatever I was going to be saying about C.S. Lewis. But uh, I turned to writing about uh, Warney uh, about five years ago. I'd sort of come to the end of several writing projects. I was looking around for something else to work on, and um, I realized that um, I had always been really interested in Warney. I knew that no one had written a full-length biography of him, and so in 2015, I started working on that uh, research process. Hmm. And what were your sources when you were researching him? What, what documents could you actually look at? Well, the main primary sources were found in the Lewis papers, which Warney had, of course, edited. And um, lots and lots of his letters, particularly uh, up until about 1930 or so, because that's kind of when the Lewis papers stopped. So lots of his letters, lots of letters written to between he and Albert, his father, and, and Jack. But the primary source of primary documents was Warney's diary. He began a diary in 1912 that was sort of sporadic. He picked it up again in, two, in 1918 during World War I. And he kept that diary from 1918 to, oh, roughly maybe late 1972, pretty consistently. There are some gaps. But the diary runs to 1.2 million words. Dang. So you can imagine just going through the diary 
where there is wheat, but there's also a lot of chaff. <laughs> but you've got to go through, you've got to sift through the chaff to get to the wheat. So I would say probably the diary was the main source that I, that I went to. It's incredible that he could keep a diary for that long. I'm sure I'm not alone yeah. in starting a diary on January 1st, and then the next entry is sometime in February. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he decided early on that he would be rather dogged in the keeping of the diary. He, he recognized, he said, I know that to many people reading my uh, comments will, will be like eating sawdust. But to me, it gives me the opportunity to remember where I was in a certain place, the sounds of the place, the people I was with at the time, and so forth. So it, he created kind of a, a cinema, if you will, for his mind in the writing of his diary. Of course, this was the days before Facebook memories. Now, Facebook tells me where <laughs> I was five years ago, and then I can enjoy that memory. <laughs> That would be frightening to think of Jack and uh, Jack and uh, Warney keeping Facebook page. That'd be frightening, wouldn't it? Oh, somebody needs to write some fan fiction about that. I think <laughs> that's right. Now you mentioned the Lewis Papers. For people that aren't familiar, what actually are those? Uh, the Lewis Papers are eleven volumes of the material that Warren pulled together after he retired from the army. Uh, the papers r run from roughly eighteen fifty to 1930 and again it's, it's an archive of the lewis family so it goes back uh, to his grandfather's day to his parents day uh, his father was a well-known solicitor in belfast so there are uh, many many of his letters many diary entries um, also letters from uh, their mother uh, this warney's mother flora letters from jack um, newspaper clippings sermons just a hodgepodge of material that uh, Warney organized. He started in 19, um, 1932, 1933, right at the end of his uh, army career. It took him about three and a half years. He typed out the Lewis papers in, with the hunt and peck method, uh, method of uh, you know, one finger at a time mm -hmm. on an old royal typewriter that he had bought when he was in the army. In his diary, he would say which volume of the Lewis papers he had finished before he was going on to the next. And I think really the, the working on the Lewis papers and the, and the keeping of the diary, they probably reveal what I think is the, the main characteristic of Warren Lewis. And that was that he was a pragmatic, practical, down-to-earth, commonsensical kind of person, very much interested in the everyday. And that's something that I think, that's a gift I think you have to have as an historian. Hmm. Well, in today's episode, what I'd like to do is give our listeners a rough sketch of Warney's life and whet their appetite for your future book. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the man himself. Listeners who have read Surprised by Joy will know some of the details of Warney's childhood because they know some about Jack's. But how would you characterize his childhood? I think that it was a happy childhood, uh, at least until the death of his mother. You started with a nice um, quote from Warren. Here's another one from the beginning of his memoir that he wrote as a part of the collection of letters that he put together in 1966. Warren writes, My brother was born in one of the inner suburbs of Belfast on the 29th of November, 1898, when I was nearly three and a half years old. I first remember him dimly 
as a vociferous disturber of my domestic peace and a rival claimant to my mother's attention. Few detailed and particular memories remain of our first years together, though during these first years, up to our move to the new house in the spring of 1905, we laid the foundations of an intimate friendship that was the greatest happiness of my life and lasted unbroken until his death 58 years later. So if readers don't understand this about these two brothers, that is that they loved each other deeply and sincerely and through many challenges, you won't really understand uh, Warren Lewis. And that passage you read is, is beautiful. And I've heard various people suggest that while Jack's content is generally better, Warney is the superior writer. Would you agree with that? I'm not sure I would say he's the superior writer, but he's certainly an equal to his brother. Uh, John Wayne, one of the last of the Inklings, I guess, he might, or one of the youngest of the Inklings, he definitely compared the two brothers and said that um, he thought Warney's prose was at least as effective as Jack's, if not better. Mm. So your, your, your statement there, or your, think, your, your reference to other people thinking that maybe Warney was the best, the better stylist is certainly possible. Mm. I hold him in very high regard. How did Warney find school? We know Jack hated his experience pretty much from start to finish. Well, both of them hated uh, their time at Winyard with the terrible oldie uh, headmaster. So they, they both hated that thoroughly. But when Warney went to Malvern, uh, he loved it. He fit right in. He was very much at that point of his life, sort of a hail fellow well met. Um, he, he liked uh, being with other people. He liked rubbing shoulders with the other boys. Um, he was something of a cut-up, somewhat mischievous, and so forth. Um, and he was treated so much better at Malvern than he had been at Winyard that he, he just thought it was a wonderful place. Um, Jack, on the other hand, had just the opposite kind of re uh, reaction. And I think that tells us that temperamentally the two brothers were quite different, at least at this point in their life. I, I think later in life there was a kind of shift that took place Initially, I think Jack was rather introverted, only interested in learning and so forth. Warning, on the other hand, very much out there, gregarious and so forth. But I, th I think after the end of Warning's career, they, the, tra the trajectory of the two brothers sort of went in the opposite direction. Jack became much more, I think, open, much more um, interested in interacting with the outside world. And Warning began to turn a little bit more inward. One of my favorite passages in Surprised by Joy is when Jack is ranting about somebody inviting him to a party. It's like, I'd never done anything to her, never invited her to a party. Why did you want to do such a thing to me? As a fellow introvert, I very much appreciate that sentiment. <laughs> yeah, that is a great one. He liked Malvern. Um, he didn't, he wasn't very well prepared academically when he got to Malvern, so he didn't do that well. And I, I think he might have um, had some real problems had not World War I come, uh, come along. I know this is sort of an ironic kind of thing to say, but as Warney looked about him as a 16, 17, 18-year-old, he knew he was probably going to have to serve in World War I. And so he made the decision to shift from kind of a classic sort of curriculum at Malvern to more of a science-oriented curriculum all as a way of preparing him eventually to take the entrance exam to Sandhurst. 
the uh, military equivalent of America's Annapolis, I guess you might mm-hmm. say. And key to that process, that process of getting ready after he left Malvern, he spent about six months being tutored by W.T. Kirkpatrick, uh, his brother's own great, um, I guess, Lewis family tutor, who was well-known to many who, who read Surprised by Joy. And I think what's interesting is when you read Warney's account of Kirkpatrick, he anticipates in many of the phrases that he uses, many of the ways in which he describes Kirkpatrick, he anticipates phrases that Jack later uses in Surprised by Joy. So I think that, I, I think you could make the argument that at least in some parts of Surprised by Joy, uh, Warney is sort of an unnamed co-conspirator in terms of describing things about Malvern and about Kirkpatrick and other things. Hmm. So I think that's another way to suggest that suggests the closeness of the two brothers. Well, after he completed his education uh, and ending with the tutoring with Kirkpatrick, Warney took the entrance exam to Sandhurst, apparently did quite well, and he mm-hmm. entered the army. What was his career like? Uh, well, of course, it was, uh, as with many men of that time who served in World War One, it was, it was incredibly marked by those uh, war years, 19, excuse me, yeah, 1914 to 1918. A horrific kind of experience. Warney, he served in the branch of the British Army that essentially took care of logistics and supplies and ammunition and so forth. Uh, the Armed Service Corps it was called later. It was called the Royal Armed Service Corps. So um, while on occasion he would have been directly under fire, for the most part, he was in a support role behind the lines. But any soldier knows how important logistics are. You you can't fight an army on an empty stomach. You can't move equipment with no fuel and, and no um, no machines or horses. And you probably know that for most of World War One, the primary means of transportation was horse, not not a mechanized vehicle that changed over time. So Warney had to learn how to ride a horse. There's some funny letters between Jack and Albert in which they joke about what it would have been like to watch Warney learn how to ride a horse. <laughs> um, and, it, and his first stint there during World War I um, with the ASC was with a horse transport unit. Later on, he was shifted into a mechanical transport unit. But he, he had a number of varied kind of experiences. After the war, he ended the the uh, service in 1914 he retired in 1932 so he had a pretty pretty lengthy service he spent some time after the war in belgium as things were sort of being mopped up he was obligated to take um, a tour uh, a foreign tour so he ended up in 1921 and 1922 going to sierra leone then he came back and spent several years uh, working at various spots in and around london and eventually, towards the end of the 1920s, he did several tours of duty to the Far East, particularly to Shanghai. So unlike Jack, who I think was only out of England three times in his whole life, uh, Warney traveled all over the world. Hmm. And again, I'm suggesting, I suggest that as a way of showing the difference between the two boys, Jack still being much more of an introvert, Warney very much out there as an extrovert exploring the world, interested in how the world works, how machine works, how ships and trains and so forth work. So um, very a very rich career, I think. But he was, by the 
I'd say by 1930, he was ready to uh, leave the service, and so he began planning. It was about a two-year process for him to eventually um, be honorably discharged, I guess that's what we would say here in the States. Um, so I think one of the happiest days of his life is when he picked up the newspaper there in December of 1932, and he read that you know he had retired and announced <laughs> in the newspaper. And then, so I mean, he was a relatively young man. He had, you know, most of the rest of his life um, to look forward to. Well, most listeners will know the story of how Lewis lost his faith and found it again. What was Warney's journey on that score? It was similar, though I think uh, for different reasons. Warney never spends a lot of time writing introspectively about his spiritual life, particularly when he was a young man. I think for the most part, he adopted sort of the cultural Protestant Irish religion of his father, in part because he didn't want to cause a scene. Uh, He didn't want his father to blow up at, at him and so forth. But I think by the time he's at Malvern, his his faith is it's just a social faith it's a cultural faith it's not a personal faith at all i think the two brothers really maybe for different reasons although they probably were tangential they basically sort of drifted away from uh, christianity at about the same time the really interesting thing is uh, is that warren he he kept going i think as a service member he was sort of required to keep going to church or to chapel um, and he would write about how boring the sermons were and, and so forth from time to time. But towards the end of his army career, and uh, at a, I, I, think, I think I've got this right, about the same time that his brother was um, making his movement back to theism, and about the same time that Jack took his first communion after many years, Warney was doing the same thing on the other side of the world. He had he had uh, visited the Kabuda or the uh, let's see the famous Buddha in Japan. Um, I'm gonna have to look that one up. I can't think of it. it starts with a K. Um, maybe maybe when we break, I'll I'll look that up. Anyway, he had he had visited this this huge Buddha, this 80 foot Buddha in Japan on his way back to the to Britain. He basically made a tour around the world as he came back to Britain. And he was profoundly moved. He had a deeply spiritual experience standing in front of that Buddha. And I think that was the catalyst for his own return to Christianity. And again, I'm pretty sure that almost on the same day, Warren took his first communion after many years, and Jack took his uh, after many years on other sides of the world. And they didn't really know that each other was making that, that kind of shift. So I think that's a, that's a wonderful irony. I remember when I visited the Kilns, we saw Warney's room, or at least what was Warney's room, and they did have a, a tiny little statue of, of a Buddha, and they, they told us that story, that yeah. it was actually through this encounter with Eastern spirituality that actually brought him back to his faith. Does he ever actually unpack a whole lot of what that was, other than the fact that he, was, he had this spiritual experience and this sent him back to church? rather than, say, adopting Buddhism? No, he, he didn't really un, unwrap it very much. He just basically said he had this incredible, numinous kind of experience, and he came back around to believing that there was a deeply meaningful spiritual world. And I think after, you know, after World War I, after service in the Army, he, he, he saw much, so much of life that 
it just lacked meaning. And so that standing in front of this Buddha made that made that shift happen for him. And then he did become he became, you know, a pretty faithful middle of the road Anglican. Uh, served on the uh, vestry at the Holy Trinity Church in Headington during during the 1950s. Um, was very much respected by people in his church. So, yeah, he did you know, on several occasions. He tried to read through the whole Bible, but at one point he said he got to Leviticus and he said it was just so boring. I couldn't go any further. But that's more when he was a young man. Later on, he he he, he was able to get through it. I'm glad to hear it. Someone that can keep a diary for that long. Come on, just read a little bit each day. <laughs> <laughs> that that was his plan, just to read a little bit each day. There you go. There you go. Now, Warney eventually moved into the kilns with Jack, Mrs. Moore, and her daughter, Maureen. Mrs. Yeah. Moore being the mother of one of Jack's fallen comrades in World War I. Right. What was life like at the kilns? We're reading through the four loves this season, so was there much doggy affection in that home? Well, let me say that um, initially, before Warren moved in, Jack wrote him a long letter and said, here's what you need to be prepared for. So Jack tried to help Warren understand something about the ethos of the kilns. Warren also, Warren he already knew Mrs. Moore. He had known her for about 10 years when he moved in. Um, and he was, uh, Warney was somewhat leery about moving in because of what he knew about Mrs. Moore. And then he got Jack's warning. But in his diary, he basically said, it's worth being with Mrs. Moore if it means I can be with Jack. Hmm. So I, I think in terms of Storgy, I think that I think that's kind of a great example of it. He he would he would take living with a person that initially he didn't really know very well, and then he came to not like very much, and then he came to loathe. And I don't say that lightly. He was willing to do that so that he could be near his brother almost daily. Now Eros enters Lewis's life in the form of Joy Davidman, and the two marry. How did Warney feel about his brother's new wife? He was head over heels in love with Joy Davidman, not in a Eros way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she was the sister, maybe, that he never had. He found her to be delightful. She was a wonderful conversationalist. She could tell jokes. She could take jokes. She could drink with the best of them. Um, she was brilliant. She helped edit a number of Warney's books. And I don't think it's too far to make this claim. I think that other than Warney's mother, the woman he loved most in his life was Joy Davidman, mm. again, as a sister. And um, he was crushed when, when she died. So very, very powerful. Given the fact that the reception of Joy by the other Inklings and many of the people in Jack's life was well, more on the frosty side. I think the fact <laughs> that his brother liked her so much must have made such a huge difference to Jack. Absolutely. And, and both Jack and Warney were very circumspect in their views of women in general, uh, particularly before they met uh, Joy. And so, you know, those so there there have always been some who have believed that Joy somehow tricked Jack into marrying her. 
uh, I'm not, they, they haven't taken into account Warney. Um, Warney would not, he, there was a particular kind of woman that he did not like. Mrs. Moore was chief among those as a kind of an example. But he was not a misogynist. He, uh, he, neither he nor Jack hated women. There were a particular kind of women that neither of them could stand. But Joy wasn't like that. Joy was, she was delightful. She was, a, again, a wonderful conversationalist. She was affable. Well, while we're talking about Eros, I heard from Dr. Diana Glyer for the first time about Blanche Biggs, who was a female missionary doctor in Papua New Guinea, with whom yes. Warney corresponded for some time. Uh, how did that friendship begin? And do you think their relationship was Storgi, Philia, or possibly Eros? Well, I, I don't think I could speak for Blanche Biggs, <laughs> what her opinion was. But um, it began because she wrote him about the book I mentioned here a moment ago, his, his collection of his brother's letters and then the memoir that he had written. So as I recall, she wrote him about that. And um, that began their correspondence. Diana could let you know for sure. I think over 60 letters were exchanged between the two of them. And I, I think that Warney, um, he enjoyed the correspondence with her. I think he, he found her work as a missionary to be quite inspiring, found her to be a, a wonderful person to communicate with and so forth. Um, if there was, um, well, I, I think I could say definitively that there was, on Warney's part, there was no eros involved in that relationship. On her part, there probably was, but Diana would probably be the better person to ask about that. <laughs> Um, the reason I don't think Warney, you know, ever went beyond Eros with um, Blanche was that as I went through his diary for those years, I kept looking perhaps for him to write and reflect on, you know, having met Blanche Biggs and what a wonderful person she was. One, he only refers to her one time in his diary during those years. That tells me something. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I just, I just don't think that Warney thought of her in a romantic way. Hmm. But, but yes, in terms of Storgi friendship, yeah, absolutely. Now, Warney struggled with alcohol for a good part of his life. Where did that begin, and how would you characterize his alcoholism? Because I've heard people describe it differently from what I typically think of as alcoholism. Yeah. And I don't want to claim that I'm an expert, but looking at his life, I think that I think a case can be made for um, it going all the way back to his father, Albert, who um, I don't think that Albert was an alcoholic, but I think he at times he did overuse, perhaps abuse alcohol, particularly at the death of his wife. Uh, that was a time in England, it could still be the case today, but that was a time in England in which alcohol was, I think, relatively available to younger people. Warney talked about many times at Malvern College, you know, he's a young teenager. Of course, that happens today, too, but <laughs> he talks about going off with his friends off off uh, the Malvern campus to smoke and to drink and to sort of, we would say, they party a little bit. So I think he was using alcohol pretty freely. But probably not a, not abusing it at that point. I think that World War One was the critical point in which Warney began to abuse alcohol, as did many men living in those incredibly perilous conditions, 
And you'd have these long periods of boredom in which nothing was happening at all. And then these moments of incredible uh, fear as the, as the attacks began. I think nothing could have been more normal probably than men began to drink too much alcohol, just a way of passing the time. I think then when he when he uh, when he went to Sierra Leone and throughout his service in England, I think there were just many many times in which alcohol. And he writes about this frequently in his diary. He, he just writes about having he knew he had drink he had drank too much, even though he had made commitments to himself, New Year's resolutions, if you will, to to not do that. And so I, I think it was a very gradual kind of thing. He also writes about just liking the taste of alcohol. You know, it wasn't something he, he didn't have to make himself drink it. He actually liked the taste of it. So I think it was a long, very slow process. But I'd say by the by the time he retired, by the time he retires from the army, I'd say by the mid 1930s, he's got a very serious problem with alcohol. And that was exacerbated when he was called up in World War II for a little less than two years. Mm. He was very, very depressed about having to go back into the army and about having to serve in another war. And uh, I think he 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 um, he abused alcohol pretty badly at that point. Mm. I think throughout the 1940s he really did. I think Joy kept trying to get him to go to AA, and he just wouldn't have any of it. She did. I mean, she, as you you know, she was married to herself to an alcoholic. Bill Gresham was an alcoholic. She had dealt with it firsthand. I think she did help some. I think she she encouraged warning enough so that he did curb his drinking to some degree. But then after her death, it all kind of went to went down the went down the hole again. Now you mentioned already that Warney was a writer. What did he write? Um, well, one of the joys I had in uh, working on this book was finding the different kinds of things that he wrote. Of course, I knew he wrote a diary. I knew he had written the, the Lewis papers, um, and I knew he'd written some books on 17th century French history. But what I hadn't realized is that during the 1930s, after he retired from the army, as he was living in Oxford, and probably as a way of getting away from Mrs. Moore, he had a motorboat built that he sailed along the canal there the Bosphorus. And he ended up writing eight articles for the motorboat and yachting magazine about having a canal boat. And they're, they're delightful. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 many have said he, he probably had this boat built to get away from Mrs. Moore. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, um, he enjoyed outside He's a great nature writer. Some of the passages from these uh, essays are just marvelous as he reflects on the beauty of the surroundings. And so, yeah, that was a lot of fun to come across those articles. I I, I refer to those um, in one of the chapters. And then, of course, the seven books that he wrote on 17th French history, primarily focusing on Louis XIV, are, um, are masterful. A couple of them I would call biographies, biographies of other people that were a part of the king's court. Um, and one of his books is sort of a sort of a sort of a small biography of, of Louis the Fourteenth. But he does a great job of capturing what it would have been to live uh, in the seventeenth century in France around the court. He writes about medicine of the time. Writes about the writers of the time, the organization of the army, what it would have been like to be a galley slave working 
working, I guess, not really working, laboring, I'm not sure what you call a galley slave, what they do, but uh, uh, just very vivid kind of stuff. How did he get into French history? Why, why did he write about that? Um, after World War I, when he was serving in Belgium, uh, and by the way, he had been taking French since his Malvern day, so he had some knowledge of French, and then it, serving in World War I, of course, he became much more fluent in, in, in uh, French. But in Belgium, after World War I, he went into a bookstore one day, and he found a diary, or he found the memoirs of one of the court members of Louis XIV. And he absolutely fell in love with those memoirs. And uh, he wrote his father, and he said, you know, this is my favorite period of French history. Um, and so that was kind of the, the particular catalyst was uh, coming across the memoirs. And he was a great memoir writer, excuse me, reader, uh, reader of biographies, uh, letters. Um, and I, uh, he, for instance, he, he loved reading Samuel Pepys's diary. And... Um, he loved reading about uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson through the life of Boswell. So all of those early influences, I think, uh, did much to shape his own life as a writer. If a C.S. Lewis fan out there wants to get into some of Warney's writing, where do you recommend that they actually start? I would probably suggest that they start with his, um, his first book, and that book is The Splendid Century, Some Aspects of the French Life and Reign of Louis XIV. Um, as I said, it's, it's, this is a, not a biography of Louis XIV so much as it is a social history of what was going on during the reign of uh, Louis XIV. And I, I think you'll find, or your, your listeners will find, what a, what a wonderful writer he is. Um, the turn of phrase. Uh, the use of memoirs, uh, the use of biographies, um, just just wonderful. And, and I think it's worth noting that Warney wasn't what we would call a professional historian. He he would have called himself an amateur historian because he never went to university. Um, but it's my understanding that his books on 17th century, 17th century French history are still uh, used by many who study that period. That's so cool. <laughs> so again, The Splendid Century, that's the one book I would say start with. Okay. Well, Lewis dies in 1963, uh, and I remember hearing that his brother didn't actually make it to the funeral because he was at home, blind drunk. Uh, and Warney lived for about another decade. What did he do during that time? Well, I think it's fair to say that those were pretty dark years for Warney. I mean, he had lost his he had lost his best friend Jack, and he'd also lost uh, lost Joy not long before that. So, in many ways, they were dark years. I think his alcoholism increased. He did uh, after Jack's death. He did put together that collection of letters, and he did write that memoir. So you could say that's you know the eighth book that he that he wrote. He spent a lot of time um, reading, uh, a lot of time alone. Lived, he moved in and out of the kilns for various reasons. He at one point said that it was hard for him to stay in the kilns because of all the ghosts that he, he sensed there. And so for a while, he moved into a little house a couple of blocks away. He was aided by the Millers, uh, her, his housekeeper and her husband. Doug Gresham has very negative views of the Millers. Mm -hmm. I think Walter Hooper's view of the Millers, not nearly as... Um, 
Graham as, as Douglas's. In my reading, it's hard to tell. Uh, Warney doesn't ha doesn't seem to hold any uh, animosity towards the Millers at all. They they did what he wanted them to do, which was take care of him, provide food for him. They would take an annual trip to Ireland, and uh, Mr. Miller would drive the car. Warney would pay all the expenses for for the Millers and for himself. So. You know, in that regard, I think that they, they did what Warney wanted him to do. Now, whether or not they were taking advantage of him, I think the jury may be out a little bit on that. Hmm. But one thing that he did that I enjoyed, uh, I think in 1967, he decided to reread uh, Shakespeare. He basically said, people tell me that I should like Shakespeare, and I've tried to like Shakespeare all my life, so I'm going to read Shakespeare and see if I can like Shakespeare. <laughs> um he he liked some of the comedies. He hated the tragedies. Um, he thought King Lear was like a a mishmash of ununderstandable uh, people and ideas. But not surprisingly, he liked the histories. Yeah. So at at the end of the process, he basically said, "I tried, and I don't. I really don't understand why people like Shakespeare so much." <laughs> said every schoolboy ever. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, that broke my heart, but anyway. Well, he didn't have you as a teacher. I'm sure that would have made a difference. I'm sure that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, let's wrap up today's episode by talking about your upcoming book. Uh, first of all, when is it expected to be released? I'm right in the middle now of doing probably the next to last revisions. So I'm guessing, I would say next fall at the earliest, and that, that really depends on the schedule that Kent State University Press has. Mm. So I would say next fall at the earliest, maybe spring of 2023 would be more realistic. Uh, again, the, the manuscript is done, but as you probably know, there's a lot that goes into getting a book uh, published. There would be something sort of um, poetic about waiting, in 2000, uh, waiting until 2023, because that would be 50 years after the death of Warning. Mm. And I, I don't know if that would be something they'd want to put on the blurb or, or what, but anyway, I leave that to the publishers. I'm hoping, by the way, to include a lot of pictures that maybe haven't appeared in the past. Mm. So uh, I'll be working with the people at the Marion E. Wade Center who hold all the copyright to Warney's material and have lots and lots of photos. But I, I do want to include as many photos as we can. I love pictures of Warney. He always looks so cheery. Yeah, yeah. And let me say um, that I'm really thankful to the the uh, staff, um, David and Crystal Downing uh, at uh, and Laura, um, Laura Smith and Marge Mead and others at the Wade Center have been so helpful over the years with the, the work on this. And how is your book structured around Warney's life? Is it chronological, thematic, relating to Lewis? It's, it's chronological. Mm -hmm. It's chronological, yeah. And was there anything which surprised you in researching and writing the book or any aspects of Warney's life which you think are too often overlooked or just unknown? I think the thing that's most overlooked was his gifts as a writer, which we've, we've already talked about, the quality of his writing. I'm sure that I was surprised by a number of things, but I've dealt with them so long now, they don't surprise me quite so much. I, I suppose... I'm not sure this is a surprise, and it's, it's a little dangerous to kind of go out on this limb. 
by the way, there are a lot of differences between the brothers and there are a lot of similarities. I talk about those, but I think that the main thing towards the end that I started thinking about was about their spiritual lives. And again, this is a little bit dangerous to say, but I think the difference between Jack and Warney was this. When you read C.S. Lewis, you feel as if C.S. Lewis knew or knows God. And when you read Warney, and when Warney writes about the same thing, Warney knows about God. And I don't know if that's a difference. It's, it's a profound difference to me, knowing God and knowing about God. And I would put myself on the side of Warren. I mean, I'm not a... I'm not a C.S. Lewis in terms of that very intimate kind of relationship that he seems to have had with God. Um, I, I think I know more about God than I know God. And I don't know if that I don't know if that makes any sense or not. Yeah, and particularly if you say that Morney doesn't write a lot about his interior life, that's not mm-hmm. hugely surprising. Whether or not that was a reflection of reality, but it's much harder to understand somebody's relationship with God if they don't actually talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good way to put it. Well, Dr. King, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to reading your book, whether it's this year or the year after. Uh, And uh, we'll definitely have you back on the show when it's time to be released. Wonderful. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners and all of our patron supporters, particularly our top-tier supporters, That's Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. And if you're looking for a gift for a loved one at Christmas, you might still have time to be able to get them one of the laser-etched Pints with Jack glasses, scientifically proven to improve beverages by at least 23%. And you can find links to all of our merchandise on pintswithjack.com. And next month is January, which means we'll be starting a new love in the four loves. Friendship. Philia. So please join us then when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.